Father, I pray that we won't spin our wheels here or waste our time or go down any rabbit trails that are unhelpful, but that you will give me a kind of prophetic pointedness that would enable me to choose of all the things that could be said to student leaders or leaders of students, the things that would be most encouraging and strengthening and guiding and God-exalting and humbling and purifying. Give us your mind now as we talk together, I pray. Guard us from falsehood and imbalance. And I pray for those who are here with heavy, heavy hearts because something in the family has been really tough this week or there have been tremendously discouraging times on the campus. Lord, reveal yourself as a God of double encouragement. You give promises and you give oaths because you want your people encouraged. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What I thought I would do in our time together is uh, talk about... uh, some aspects of Christian hedonism. How many of you have read my book, Desiring God? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, what I want to do is, is use these as pump primers to, for question and answer time in just a few minutes. And uh, so I'll need discipline how not to fill up the whole time with all these juicy things that I like to say. But I will summarize for you what that book is about and then give you some reasons for why I think it's so crucial for your ministry. And the reason I'm doing this, not just to prime the pump of your questions and let you ask anything you want to, but what you heard this morning and what our ministry is about at Bethlehem and what I'm about as a a pastor and a writer and a speaker is spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. I think I said that last time we were together, that that's the mission statement of our church and it's the mission statement of my life. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Now that statement grows out of a theology and the theology can be summed up in Various ways, there's a real, real short version, and then there's the medium version, and there's there's the book-length version, and then there's the life version. Uh, the sentence version goes like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's a sentence that comes as close to summing up my life and theology as I can get. So that's one way of describing what's in the book Desiring God and what was in that message and what is in my life and what I believe your ministry should be about. If you want God to get glory through your student ministry, your students must be more satisfied in God than any football victory or any television program or any salary or any possible spouse or any health or life itself. And your goal must be so to minister and so to model that they become ravished with God. 
satisfied in God. I believe that's the only way that you'll break the powers of lust and greed and all the other besetting sins that destroy ministry and lives. We must break the power of sin's promise with the superior promise of God. And students must come to feel more satisfied in an awesome God than in anything else in this world. I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's everything, folks. That's everything. That's your goal if you're a Christian hedonist. Let me give you the longer version, the five-point version. This comes right out of the, somewhere near the front of the book. Christian hedonism, which is my life. Point number one, everybody wants to be happy. Now, the only reason I stick that on as point number one is because you, you can debate it and you can argue that people want other things besides happiness and what happiness is, is because I do believe that evangelistically, there is a common ground anywhere in the world and on any campus. Everybody wants satisfaction. Everybody wants to be happy. You can use the word joy. You can use the word pleasure. You can use the word exultation or whatever you want to use. But the Bible is not squeamish about these things. It uses the word happiness and pleasure and joy indiscriminately and is unabashed in his statement that everybody wants this, and Jesus assumes that when he makes his case for his own name and glory. Point number two is that we should pursue the deepest and longest happiness possible. Should. This is a duty. This is an ought and a must. This is not a caboose on the train. This is not icing on the cake of Christianity. This is an absolute must. I'll give you a little anecdote here. I try not to use the name because it would embarrass somebody, but I'm, I'm going to do a seminar with a well-known missions person later somewhere. And uh, I, we, we don't live in the same part of the country. I never talked to this person, and they just put us on the schedule, do a seminar together on missions. And they wrote me to write the description for the seminar. So I did, and faxed it to this person. And uh, the message came back. Uh, it had a sentence in something like, um, we are going to talk about how to pursue your maximum joy in giving your life away on the mission field or something like that. And this person wrote back and said, well, now, I really don't like talking about pursuing joy because uh, Dr. Piper and I both know that joy is a byproduct of obedience and therefore let's stress obedience and not joy. <laughs> Why are we together in this seminar? <laughs> now, here's the problem with what that person said. Here's the problem. That person said, we know that obedience is the key and joy is the byproduct. That's a confusion of categories. 
Obedience to what? Commands like delight yourself in the Lord. You see the problem? You can't choose between obedience and joy pursuit because you're commanded to pursue joy. Over and over in the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is not optional. This is a command. So, okay, okay, let's talk about obedience to that command. Okay, that's a little close the anecdote parenthesis on point number two. It is, it is your duty. It is your duty to pursue maximum joy. By maximum, I mean as deep as possible and as long as possible. Point number three. According to Psalm 1611, that pursuit terminates on God or you're an idolater. Thou dost show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures. How long? Forevermore. So I said you need, I'm not going to settle for any TV joy here, any sex joy, any family joy, any money joy, any pride at speaking at Passion 98 joy. Those are threats to the real joy. I'm going for deepest joy and longest joy. So the text says in his presence is what kind of joy? Fullness, gotcha, I'm there, I want that, I'm going nowhere else if that's true, and at his right hand are pleasures for how long? Forever. I'm not settling for 800 years or 8,000 years. You give me forever, I'm looking somewhere else. So I've got my answer, if that's true. So point number three is that this duty to pursue Deepest, longest joy takes us straight to God, nowhere else. Point number four. The consummation, the height, the pinnacle, the apex of this quest for joy, which we now know to be joy in God, not his gifts, not health, wealth, and prosperity, I love Habakkuk 3, 17-19. Noel and I had it read at our wedding 29 years ago. Though there be no sheep in the stall, though there be no fruit on the vine, though the olive fail, yet will I rejoice in the Lord my God. In other words, if being a farmer, everything fails and you starve to death, God is your joy. Now, that's what I mean. The apex of that quest for joy in God is when your joy in him 
expands like a weather front, a high pressure weather front into the low pressure zone of people's pain and draws them into that experience so that you see more of God in their enjoying more of God. Don't ever say that the consummation is a kind of Hindu or Buddhistic, isolated, pondering, all alone, under a tree, with your legs crossed, God. You will not find God there in His fullness. So if you really want the fullest possible enjoyment of God, your emerging joy of Him must expand like a, a pressure zone Drawing students, drawing mom and dad and brother and sister as much as it lies within you by the power of the Holy Spirit into that very joy so that as you rise together in that joy in Him, your joy is made fuller in its being reflected back to you in their joy of God. Now that's point number four. Call it love. Just call it love. If you want a short version. And and the last point the fifth summary point is therefore it's a big therefore and it's it's uh, i put a point on it because if things aren't controversial they're probably not true <laughs> and the point is therefore the degree to which you try to deny your desire to be happy, the degree to which you work at denying it as though it were a bad thing, to that degree will you fail to love people and fail to honor God. Which means that there are a lot of people who philosophically are opposing God in his name. Because they're telling people, that the doctrine of self-denial means you should not want to do anything for the motive of happiness. I get these letters. Not as many now as I used to since I'm sort of old hat and, you know, either you believe these crazy things or you don't. But I used to get more letters that you do what's right because it's right and not because it will make you happy. I think that's atheism. I think if I'm not motivated to be more delighted in God by what I'm doing, I'm an atheist. I think pagans do what's right for right's sake. Let me, let me put another spin on it and just restate point number five positively. The pursuit of joy in God is a necessary component of all virtue and all worship. Underline the word necessary. It is a necessary component of all virtue and all worship. Now, I wrote the whole book to defend those five points. But what I'd like to do here is, is just give some reasons for why this is important to me and... Uh, why I would commend it to you for your very, very serious consideration. You can build a ministry around whatever you want, 
But I'm arguing with all my might here that if you don't build it around something like these things, it will be profoundly defective in bringing God glory and honor. Let me list off some reasons. And um, these reasons I'm going to give you here are are uh, in the appendix called, I don't know what it's called, why I, why I believe this or something like that. And, and uh, I'm just going to point them. And the first one is that God is breathtaking. God is breathtaking. And therefore, you ought to commend to your students to pursue what is breathtaking. You, we send them places to see great things. We bring them to Passion 98. We, we send them t- into the star-filled sky at night to look up. I talked about Grand Canyon in the message this morning. Why do people go there and why do these buy these big, fat, glossy coffee table books of mountains and rivers and canyons? Why? It's because God is breathtaking and there is implanted in every human heart eternity, as he, Ecclesiastes says, so that you cannot find out anything because you're made to embrace the infinite with your affections. So God is breathtakingly glorious. And your biggest job and your hardest job is to portray that for students who don't have anybody else telling them that or showing them that. The music they listen to, by and large, isn't giving them that message. The TV programs they watch isn't giving them that message. The newspapers they read is not giving them that message. The late-night dorm discussions aren't giving them that message. Where are they going to get that Truth that God is breathtakingly glorious. Well, hopefully in their local church. However, Albert Einstein, 1955, he died in 1955, um, said that he had seen so much of the glory of God that when he went to church, he felt like the pastor was blaspheming. And the line goes on, he just was not talking about the real thing. You know, if he were using the words of Job, he would say, these are but the outskirts of his glory. When you look up and you see through a telescope or what the Hubble is seeing out there now, See, I read an article every few weeks or so about what this telescope out there is seeing and and worship. If you look up and you see the expanse of the universe, and those of you who might be in some kind of science that's related to astronomy, you've got to have a God big enough to do that like that. And I wonder how many of our churches are portraying a God who can whisper the universe into being. So that's the first reason this is important to me. God is breathtaking. The second is that the Word of God commands us to pursue our joy. I think I've said probably enough about that, that we can pass over that. It commands us to pursue our joy. It doesn't just suggest it. Maybe I could add this one thing about self-denial. Jesus said, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. What that means is 
unless you deny yourself all inferior, short-term, inadequate, unsatisfying, fleeting pleasures, you can't be my disciple. So Moses is an example of somebody in Hebrews 11.26 who forsook the fleeting pleasures of Egypt because he looked to the reward. That's what Jesus meant by self-denial. Or Esau did exactly the opposite. Esau is an example of a person who did not live a life of self-denial. He saw in front of him a birthright through which he could know God to the full and be an heir of the promises of God, and he looked at a bowl of oatmeal and chose the oatmeal. That's not self-denial. That's suicide. Self-denial is to look at God and look at oatmeal and choose God. That's self-denial. That's what Jesus meant by self-denial. And your job is to help your students see their sorority and fraternity strokes as oatmeal. And coming in number one in any sport as oatmeal. And getting the best job possible as oatmeal. And finding the perfect spouse as oatmeal. That's your job. It's to teach them what real self-denial is so that they will not deny themselves the pursuit of joy in God, which would be blasphemy. Ultimate self-denial is blasphemy. Because it says, God offers me himself to enjoy forever and ever, and I choose to deny myself that joy. That's blasphemy. It's heresy, it's idolatry, and it's ultimately atheism. Here I am, the fountain of life. Jeremiah 2.13. Remember that definition of evil? Be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of life, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the ultimate evil. The ultimate evil of the universe is to look God in the face, have him smile upon you, offer himself to you for infinite and eternal joy, and have you say, I think I'll deny myself that pleasure and turn on the television. That's blasphemy. And that's ultimate self-denial. And it's wicked. You need to persuade your students of that. A third reason this is important to me is because affections or emotions are essential to the Christian life and are not icing on the cake. This is almost the same as a previous point, but not quite. Um, I, uh, at this point, I've I'm, I'm, I'm gotten to the point where I'm rehearsing the second message I gave here last year in the plenary session where I listed off all these objections to Christian hedonism. So I I don't think I'll dwell too long on that, except to say the Bible commands us not to covet, which is a desire, commends us to be content, commends us to bear no grudge. It commends us to love one another from the heart. It commands us to love each other with brotherly affection. I'm stressing it like this because there are a lot of people who say love is not a feeling, it's a decision. And so don't worry about whether your feeling is there or not. 
Well, that's a half-truth. That's a half-truth. It is a decision, and you should worry about whether the feelings are there or not. And if they're not there, you should repent. Feelings matter. The Bible commands them everywhere. I'll keep the list going. It commands joy. It commands hope. It commands fear. It commands peace. It commands zeal. It commands grief. It commands desire. It commands tenderheartedness. It commands brokenness and contrition. It commands gratitude. It commands lowliness. And the reason people argue that the Bible doesn't command the feelings is because we can't turn them on and off like a water spigot. And therefore, assumption, not from the Bible, but from the man-centered mindset, assumption, you can't be commanded to do what you can't do. That's a lie. You can be commanded to do what you can't do if you ought to do it. You ought to be fearful of God. He's fearful. You ought to delight in God. You ought to be at peace in the promises of God. You ought to love each other with brotherly affection. You ought to be broken hearted for your sins. You ought to be profoundly thankful for every breath you take. And none of you is able to do these things because you're all evil. Your hearts are dead in trespasses and sins until the almighty, sovereign, awakening spirit of God makes you alive and grants you repentance. Second Timothy 2.26 perchance, perchance he may grant us to repent and come to know the truth. So of course you can be commanded to do what you can't do. Dead people can't do anything worthwhile. And dead people are commanded everywhere in the Bible to do only what is worthwhile. Which means that the main thing you must teach your students is that they are desperate for God. If you, if you have a gospel that's doable by human beings, well, you've got a very easy job. I've got a gospel that's undoable by human beings. It takes God to do this thing. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It's not a willpower religion. That's why it is permeated by commands for transformed hearts who feel what they ought to feel in the presence of a glorious God. And the fact that your students can't perform it is an agenda of prayer and desperation for revival and for the coming of Almighty God upon their hearts. I tell you, I, I get up every morning and plead with God to make me live. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but I do not take for granted my life. I do not take for granted that I will wake up and love God tomorrow. Do you? Is that a given to you? That that awesome power out of this wicked heart of John Piper, that he will love God tomorrow. I do not assume that apart from, oh God, keep 
forever such purposes in my heart. That's a quote from David's prayer at the end of the building of the temple or the gathering of the stuff to build the temple. Keep forever such purposes in my heart. When I was done speaking in there, I was so glad. I, I walked off the stage in this big, big cavernous dark place. And I just started walking toward the wall. There's nobody else there. And I just wept. And I said, I am so scared. I'm not going to do what I just said and bring reproach upon this message. So, this is a God thing. This is not easy. This is not, you can't just do it. Passion 98 is all about come, 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 come. Do it. You do it. We can talk. Devils can talk. A devil could deliver that message that I gave. But the devil can't love God because the devil's never been wrought upon savingly by God to give him a new heart. God let him go. And God could let any of us go. But he won't if we're in him. We're his. And the proof of that is desperate prayer day in and day out. A fourth or fifth reason I've lost count for why these things, this Christian hedonism, is important to me is, is because it militates against boasting and self-pity, which is the flip side of boasting. I'm so scared of pride. It's an honor to be here. It really is. It's an honor to be here. To be asked back a second year is a, an honor. And it's so scary to be honored like this. It's so scary. To have written books, to have people come up, thank you, nice message. That is so scary. That is so threatening. Because there is that in every one of us and in me. A, a love of those statements and those honors. And they are deadly. That love is deadly. Now, therefore, I want a theology that cuts at that thing again and again, just cuts at boasting and cuts at the flips out of self-pity. Now, here's, here's self-pity is a form of boasting. Suppose I walk off of the platform. Now, this, this really happened almost. I totally left out a point I wanted to make this morning. I'm kicking myself because something... If you, if you go back and listen, there's an element, it's just a little piece missing. So here I am, kicking myself and starting this, this self-pity thing. It would have been a better message had you said that thing. That's a form of boasting. If I say, oh, poor me. Go home to my wife and say, she says, how did it go? I said, I left out the main point of it. Oh, poor Johnny. Go ahead. Do it to me. <laughs> Men are strange creatures. We, we like to think that we are cool and in charge and strong. And, and, and really we want Mama <laughs> to, feel, to feel sorry for us because we left our point out. And that's just pride. It, it, 
It doesn't look like pride. It looks weak. Self-pity is pride in the mouth of the weak. Boasting is pride in the mouth of the strong. Same thing. Now, Christian hedonism, I argue, cuts at that. Why? Because, a couple things. Christian hedonism says when you come to God, you come as a beggar, you come empty, you come bankrupt. And you therefore have nothing to boast in when you come to God. I'm hungry for you. I need you. I'm desperate for you. Come. My assistant over here, John Bloom, who came with me last year and came with me this year, um, wrote a song. I'm hungry for you. So hungry for you. We can play it later on. It'd be fun. You think you could do that out of your head? We'll see. You think about it. Uh, we can sing it together. When you come hungry for God, you're not boasting. You're hungry. You're empty. You're bankrupt. If you come to God to serve Him as though He needed you, then you've got something to boast in. But Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, for He Himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Therefore, Christian hedonism says, I'm bankrupt, I'm empty, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. I come to you in a, a posture of beneficiary, not benefactor. And therefore, i got nothing to boast in. And it cuts at self-pity like this. Remember Peter? Right after the rich young ruler has been dismissed, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And they are staggered. This is not what they expected him to say. And they say, well, then who can be saved? And he says, with men, it is impossible, but not with God. In other words, men can't leave their money. But God can enable you to leave your money. And then Peter pipes up. I wish I had the tone of voices here. Peter's tone and Jesus' tone. I'm not sure. But Peter says, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Poor Peter. You've left everything for me. And so Jesus didn't say that. He's, he's a totally unsentimental teacher. He said, Peter, nobody has left house or lands or sister or brother or mother or father for my sake who will not get back on this earth a hundredfold houses, lands and sisters and brothers and mothers and in the age to come with persecutions, eternal life. Quit healing sorry for yourself. Christian hedonism says, do you want this, Peter? Of course you've left those things. <laughs> of course you've left those things. You've left tin for gold. Like C.S. Lewis says, you've, you've left making mud pies in the slums for a holiday at the sea. You've left hell for heaven. You've left friends for God. 
Quit feeling sorry for yourself. So if you're a Christian hedonist, self-pity has no place. Suppose you go to Saudi Arabia or Iran or Azerbaijan and hostile mobs surround your house and kill you. I'm moving towards tomorrow's message here. Will you not say at that moment to live is Christ and to die is gain? I won't say any more because that's tomorrow's message. I mean, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Let me see. I should stop this so you can ask questions. Reason number five is that it produces genuine love. These things does do. It produces genuine love. I'll ask you this simple question. Do you feel more loved by a person, friend, pastor, when they do something good for you begrudgingly or joyfully? And my answer to that question is when they do it joyfully. So if I walk into a hospital room, one of our elders just had a heart attack, day before yesterday and I rushed to the hospital and uh, they wouldn't let me in because they were doing a procedure on him but I talked with his wife and um, she said <laughs> it's almost like the script was being written for this illustration she said oh you guys you don't have to come down here it's not that bad you're busy it's New Year's Eve. And I did not say, it's my duty to be here as a pastor. I'm supposed to be here. This is my job. I didn't say that. Because if you say, I am doing this good thing for you dutifully, in fulfillment of my pastoral responsibility, she will not feel as loved and as cared for as if I Take her by the arms and say, I love coming to be with you at a moment like this. I delight to be here, Carolyn. Now that's pure hedonism. You delight to be here. Won't you do something for us? <laughs> People are more loved when you do good for them in pursuit of joy than in fulfillment of duty. That's the chapter on love. That, that's, that takes the most explaining probably of all the chapters in the, in the book. So let me just close my talk with this and then we can open it for questions. Um, and this was all I tried to say last year when I was here is that Christian hedonism, as I've outlined it, glorifies God. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. He's my greatest dead theological hero outside the Bible. And he argued in that book that the Lord intends to glorify himself two ways in the world. One 
by our knowing him truly with our rational capacities and our delighting in him duly with our affectional capacities. To know him truly gives him glory. His excellence is reflected back through true and right ideas about him. And to feel rightly about him echoes back the other half of his excellency. If you try to know God truly without loving him duly or delighting in him duly, you give him half his glory. And if you try to feel or delight in him duly without knowing him truly, you can't. And if you could, he would only get half the glory because you can't love somebody duly if you don't know them truly. Which is why you said at the beginning, theologically informed freedom in worship is a very good slogan. And theologically informed is absolutely crucial. Worship comes from the heart or it isn't real. But if it doesn't get mediated by the head with right views of God, he's not honored. There are people with hands in the air and sway in their body and loud singing all over the world who don't know God. In fact, they're afraid of knowing God because to know him in his definition, his contours, his character is to say he's this and not that, which might get you into a controversy. And nobody in worship wants a controversy. So let's worship a cloud of unknowing. He's out there. He's something. May not be a he. <laughs> but whatever it is, it, she, he, let's feel good about him. Him, her. And that's not an honor to him. So you've got to know him with your mind and you have to pursue him passionately with your heart. And the pursuit of him is what glorifies him the most. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Now I'm done and I'm willing to take questions for as long as you want to hang out. Um, how does this play out in evangelism? Like, what would you say to a college student who maybe doesn't have a heart for God, but yet you want to share with them? How, how do you implement this theology? How does this relate to evangelism? If you're talking to a student who doesn't have a heart for God, how does this play out? And that's why I began with the point number one of my five points. That student, whether he's suicidal or anorexic or just failed his medical entrance exam or whatever, wants heart satisfaction. And you know where it's to be found. He doesn't have a clue. Even if he is a nominal Christian, he's probably got everything upside down. So evangelism consists very much in teaching the truth about God. Is it not a marvel to you in Acts 19 that Paul spent... To evangelize the city of Ephesus, two and a half years at five hours a day teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. 
Now multiply that out. Well, I didn't do it. I did it once, but I don't have it in my head. Two and a half years times, I don't know whether they took a day off or not. Just say six days, six days times two years times five hours. That's a lot of hours. Now, he didn't have to do that in the synagogue so much because he had a huge common ground. On your campuses, you probably do not have it. A little more in the Bible Belt, maybe, but I doubt it. Um, in my city, on the University of Minnesota, I don't expect many shared categories, which means that teaching, doing what I've done here, this is kind of a provocative starting point, and then the questions start to roll, and you just stay up, and you get up, and you stay up, and you get up, and you go after, and you pray. Get a little anecdote here. I was I was on the I was uh, in San Francisco a couple of years ago speaking at Golden Gate Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary out there, and one of the university students from the local campus, I think it was Berkeley, came to me and he said, "Got to tell you a story about last week. We were I was doing this evangelistic thing on an evening we worship and then speak, and unbelievers there and." He came up to me afterwards and he said, I heard all you said. And he had question after question about the problem of evil, about sovereignty of God, about free will, and about Holocaust, about everything under the sun. And he talked him for two hours, loved this guy for two hours with as many answers as he could give him out of the Bible. And when he was done, the guy was... <laughs> and he said, look, maybe would you be willing to just let me pray for you that God would just... If these things are so, we'll just show you. So he put his hand on his head like this and just said, Lord, would you just open, forget his name, his eyes, and grant him, and suddenly this guy's whimpering, just whimpering, and weeping and weeping. And he stopped and opened his eyes and waited, and he just said, Glory. I see glory. Not not every awakening is that charged. (laughs) But that in paradigm is what has to happen for everybody. You may still need that to happen in your life. And you're a student minister. Where you learned, you grew up, church said all the right things. And this whole dimension of delighting in God and resting in God and cherishing God and treasuring God and being satisfied in God such that it breaks the power of all other competing satisfactions, that is new and foreign. And you're scared you may not be a Christian. And the answer is, you may not be a Christian. So, all that to say, teach and pray. The word and prayer. The word and prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to come. But but say what is beautiful and what is glorious about God. Commend Christ in all of His attributes and all of His goodness. Have him re- I could tell you another story about a, a, a Jehovah's Witness who, uh, this was about, this is about uh, 30 years ago now, I remember this story, in Germany, in Munich. A Jehovah's Witness stood up on Easter Sunday morning and said, I was going to kill myself Friday night because... I became so desperate that I could never perform the way the Jehovah's Witnesses wanted me to perform in order to be a part of the 144,000 or anything else that I was so desperate I couldn't do anything. And I decided, and I think it was of God, that 
I would just give myself one last chance to see the truth. And I began to read the Gospel of Luke straight through. Good Friday evening. And she said, I knelt by my bed, opened the Gospel of Luke, and I read the whole book. And when I got to the cross, glory. This came. came. It opened. It opened. God opened it to me. And I saw the freedom of the gospel and the freedom of forgiveness. Forgive him. He don't, he doesn't, they don't know what they do. And to the thief, uh, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. A whole life forgiven. Just like that. So free. I mean, that's a message a Jehovah's Witness needs to hear. I mean, find out what they're, where they are, what their particular hang up is, and then try to go for it. Another question. Uh, this is, this is, uh... Veiled question. I just have to bear with me when I, when I try to articulate this. The issue of Christian hedonism in ministry, does it not, if you start with that, does it not present a possibility of emphasis upon your own pleasure, your own hedonism, instead of upon God's awesome character and his saving works, wherein our, is our greatest delight? But where is the starting point for us? Do we emphasize this is your pleasure? Do we emphasize that God is this? And Okay, that's a really good question. Let me see if I can restate it. Um, If you try to make Christian hedonism part of your ministry, is there a danger of making self and its desires and delights and pleasures the center as opposed to God being the center? And therefore, if that's a danger, how do you start? You start by talking about God or you start by talking about your, your desires? Um, evangelistically or tactically, what sentences come out of your mouth first, I would say, is determined by where the people are and the, and the Spirit's leading in the moment. You could start a, an evangelistic message with, everybody in this room, I know one thing about you. You all want to be satisfied. Build on that. Or you could shock them from the other side and and sort of the way I started this morning and say, um, God is virtually unknown by everybody in this room. He is so glorious and his centrality in his own affections is so magnificent and so out of sync with all of you pleasure lovers that you don't have a clue what God is about. You can start like that. (laughs) Now, I'm not as interested in where you start your message as where you wind up making, whether you wind up making God, the ultimate value of the universe, rather than self, the ultimate value in the universe. Maybe the most helpful thing to say in response to your question would be this. It is a confusion of categories to say uh, God is central, not your pleasure. You see, God is an objective reality in the universe. My pleasure is a subjective response to realities in the universe. Television, money, sex, booze, good grades, good job, or God. To say that these two things should somehow be weighed off against each other 
the subjective response weighed off against the objective reality is to confuse things. It's a philosophical confusion. It, it's like saying, um, God is paramount, not the worship of God. Well, worship is a response to the paramount nature of God. Of course, God is paramount, but you show how paramount he is by the response of worship or the response of delight. So I believe that what you've just said is a a very crucial warning to those of you who might be inclined to embrace Christian hedonism and make it a fabric of your ministry. Yes, I know people who have heard what I have said and have gone off and done crazy things with it. Just like they did with the doctrine of justification in the New Testament. Let us sin that grace may abound. If justification by faith alone is true, let us sin that grace may abound. Now nobody, well yes, that's not true. The Judaizers went to Paul and said, see what you got us into. Now Paul did not adjust his doctrine. He just said, let's just keep teaching. They got to get this. Of course, you can abuse glorious truth. Justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, is unbelievably dangerous doctrine. Produces antinomians everywhere. It's true. And so is Christian hedonism, I believe. And so, yes, you've pointed out a huge danger that we wind up cultivating a bunch of People who are so self-centered, they only think about themselves. That's an absolute contradiction of Christian hedonism. And that's why I stress over and over and over again, it is joy in God. God gets glory by being delighted in. He is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. So I'm working on it, and I'm sure I haven't said it as well as it can be said. And some of you perhaps are being called to say it a lot better. Another question. And just... Walk out when you need to walk out. This might be quite personal, but can you, can you just give some, uh, some qualities of your devotional life, like some of the disciplines that you have? I'd just love to hear some of those. Okay, the, the question. Well, I will a little bit, although my left hand is not supposed to know my, what my right hand is doing, much less you. <laughs> However, there, there were circumstances in 2 Corinthians where Paul made a fool of himself and uh, took a risk to talk about himself. The question was, uh, would I share something of my own devotional life? And I think behind that question, at least I'm going to put this spin on it, is uh, how do you keep your heart hot for God? How do you stay in love with Jesus? Um, well, I've already said I feel desperate a lot of the times. You know, the reason I have developed a theology of joy is because I'm not a very happy person by nature. I'm a moody person. I'm prone to depression and discouragement. And John prayed for me this morning when we got up that I wouldn't be discouraged this morning. And, and uh, I said it in my church. I have to get saved every day. <laughs> and... Uh, so you just, you know, everybody develops a theology for their own hang-ups. So, 
you need to realize that that's where all these books come from. They come out of my weakness and my craving and longing for God, which isn't there a lot of the time. So um, all that to say, I, I do try very hard to pursue him. And uh, I do it in the morning. I mean, I have a morning time. I, I'm not like those scholars. I know one in particular who says he makes no distinction between his devotional reading and his study reading, his academic reading. Well, uh, I do. Not that you don't need hard thought in the midst of devotional reading or that God can't break in upon the study of Greek tenses. But frankly, just like with Noel, my wife, there is a difference between the writing of a poem and the reading of a poem. To write a poem for my wife, which I did for our 29th anniversary, as I have for every other anniversary and birthday for these last 29 years, is unbelievably hard work. Because I believe in rhyme and meter. <laughs> and I don't want it to sound hackneyed and trite and stupid. Roses and red violets are blue. So I put hours into these things. Well, that's a very different experience than the night when it comes. And we go out and I, I reach in and, and I pull out the poem and she smiles. She knows what it is. And I say, I wrote something for you. <laughs> Can I read it to you? Sure. <laughs> now that moment of reading to her is different. Well, in the morning when I opened my Bible, this morning I read um, the first nine chapters of Genesis. It's New Year's. I'm going to read the Bible this year, right? I read the Bible every year. And so uh, the alarm went off at 6.30. Now, here's my plan. I just basically kind of maybe use this morning as a paradigm. I got to preach at 11 o'clock, right? I'm supposed to be over for a sound check at 9.30 and then pray at 10 o'clock. And so 9.30, they're getting me in the lobby downstairs. What time would you set your alarm for? You're going to do what I had to do. Well, I set it for 6.30. And Sunday mornings, I set my alarm for 4.50. I'll, I'll preach this coming Sunday. And I'll just back everything up for what I have to do. I didn't eat breakfast this morning. That's not in the equation because it's just... Uh, too many good things happening to eat breakfast. Um, that's called fasting. <laughs> um, though I did eat an apple and had orange juice, so it wasn't total fast. But I didn't go anywhere to eat breakfast. They gave me an apple in my room, a basket of fruit. Unbelievable. <laughs> and I uh, got up at 6.30, and I just opened my Bible, and I read for an hour. It took me an hour to read those nine chapters or so, because I stop, and I, I think about the wickedness of man in the flood, and I think about... In the day of Seth, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, I just stopped there and spent about five minutes calling on the name of the Lord, trying to be like that generation. So I read my Bible like that. My Bible is my prayer guide. Just read it slowly, stop, pray, read, stop, pray, read, stop, pray. I listed off all my children and my wife in my prayer. I listed off all my 18 elders this morning, and I listed off all the 20 or so support staff. I have all those names memorized because they're just like in the computer. I pray for them every day by name. 
And I prayed for all those people as I prayed through Genesis. But mainly, as you can imagine, I'm praying for this event today. God, help me. Please help me. And that's pretty much the way I do. Every day offers its unique challenge. Every day's got a staff meeting or every day's got a counseling session or every day's got a crisis or Patty's dying of cancer and I'm going to go up and see her on Christmas Eve. Oh, God, come. I'll never see her again probably. I might. She's still alive, but she's 38. She's dying of cancer. I drove 45 minutes to her house. And what do you think I'm doing in my devotions that morning as I get up early? I'm praying, oh, God. Make me so satisfied in you. Help me to see things about you that when I speak of them, Patty and Glenn, her husband, will be mightily strengthened to die. So my my devotions relate very closely to the living of my life. So I read the Bible. I'm reading it through. I, I use the Discipleship Journal reading plan. If you're not familiar with it, I recommend it highly. The Discipleship Journal reading plan And what's unique about it is that you read in four different places in the Bible, and at the end of every month, there are five free catch-up days, (laughs) which is the key to making it. You see, if you have a Bible plan that gives you no days off, you never can catch up when you get behind, and you give up in February. You're just so depressed that you're 18, 20 chapters behind. I can't read the Bible this year, but if at the end of every month, there's five free days. If you're up, you can memorize things. So that's another piece. I memorize something virtually every morning. It doesn't, it's not always new and sometimes just a little phrase to carry it like a lozenge under the tongue of my soul all day long, just sucking on it. And then in addition to Bible reading and prayer, I try to read in uh, Bible-saturated books. For me, that's Puritans, Jonathan Edwards-type books, and uh, and then I try to study some, which is just rigorous, more kind of dealing with controversies in our day, like whether God knows the future of free actions and things like that. Maybe that's enough to give you a flavor. I do try to meet the Lord for an hour or so every morning in word and prayer to uh, make me a Christian. Another question. One of your more recent books is about uh, the role of fasting and yeah. pursuing God. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your sense of the value of that and our pursuit of God. And a little bit about how you've seen that in the life of your church okay. as well. So both personally as a pursuit of God, how it influenced the church. Right. The question is about fasting and um, how I view it as relevant for me personally in my pursuit of God and how it's fleshed out in the church. The book grew out of a series of messages I gave in January of 19, January and February of 1995, right after I attended in Orlando, Bill Bright's big shindig on fasting, which has happened every year since then, and uh, it moved me deeply. And so I uh, called the church to fast that year um, one day a week one meal of that day, or how did, how did we do fasting 40? It was one 24-hour period, yeah, uh, pick a day in the week. And I put cards out, and it's something you could do with your students. And this, this enables you to not uh, manipulate or coerce fasting. I think you need to be real careful not to do that, although it's hard when you group fast. But you can uh, 
make a group of cards, like I put out 40 cards on the information table every Sunday and said, would 40 of you new people take those cards? And when they're gone, I'll know we've got 40 people that are fasting this week, one day, 24 hours. And then I listed on those cards things we might pray for through fasting. Now, I didn't know who they were. God knew who they were. And then I put another set of cards out there the next week. And we did that all year long. Um, I have called the church to different kinds of fasts over the year. Crisis fasting, when something is going on, or this will be, this Sunday will begin prayer week at our church. Many of us will, will fast a lot this week. Uh, we, it's the habit of many in the church to, to do a very significant beginning of the year fast. Now the reason for it, as I read fasting in the New Testament, and, and it was, uh, I heard Jeff Lewis this morning and I loved what he said because it sounded like what I would say. He said, it isn't, Lord, that we haven't tasted you, that we're hungry for you. It isn't that we haven't drunk at the fountain that we're thirsty. Remember him saying that? That we're thirsty for you. We have tasted. We have eaten. The kingdom has come. The Messiah is here. We're born of God. We're heirs of glory. But that means we're addicted. And we're so hungry for all the fullness of God. Fasting to me is a way of saying not, I don't have anything of you and I need you, but a way of saying, I have tasted you. I have known your forgiveness. I've known your love. I've known your acceptance. I've known your empowering. I've known your healing. I've known your helping. I've known your guiding. And you are good beyond measure. And I know that you offer so much more than I now have. I want to say with a fast, this much, oh God, I'm hungry for you. As my tummy hurts or I get a headache, and my mind, my arm is kind of, in a reflex, reaches out for that piece of cookie or bread. <laughs> that much, that, that much spontaneity, that much naturalness, I want to go for you, oh God. So I, I think it, fasting is simply an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. I need you. I want you. It's a way of adding another emphasis, like kneeling might add an emphasis. Or staying up all night, like we will next Friday at our church, praying for God to come, adds an emphasis. Another question. Go ahead. The beginning of Desiring God, again, I'm going to try and articulate it. Um, can you talk about the plans of God to not be thwarted, quoted from right. Scripture, um, which goes into the, the issues of evil and suffering and right. things that we go through in this world. Um, you've made a distinction between God seeing suffering and when he sees that little speck, yes. he grieves it like we do. Yes. When he looks at the whole picture and knows it will ultimately bring him glory, right. it's part of his plan. It's yes. part of his will. Well We're so involved in, 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 in the culture and the theology that says Things that are evil that go on this world go on because sin is in the world, but it's not God's plan or His desire for any of those things to happen. You know, so and so doesn't have cancer because God made them have cancer. 
they just are in a fallen world. I didn't know how to, I don't know, you're able to look at the really hard things and you can look at that theology and you can say, okay, well, in the big picture, God's going to be glorified and yes, he agrees with us and he feels that with us. But that sounds really good until it's your mom that's dying or it's your student who's got whatever going on. And in the midst of all that, how do you deal with that whole issue? Okay, how do you deal with that whole issue? I think what you mean, I think what you mean is come down to the practical dealing with the person in pain. Let me see if I can restate that for the tape and for those of you who might not have heard, although that was an excellent restatement of exactly what I said and what I believe. Dealing with the problem of evil or pain or suffering, I argue in Desiring God that he has the unbelievable capacity, almost unbelievable, to look through the narrow lens at death and say, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.33. I grieve. He wept over Jerusalem. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. And he has the capacity. He can even do this simultaneously. Ask me not how. So that the lens encompasses all of history and all of eternity and see the mosaic, that's one analogy, such that the existence of this is part of a larger thing of which he does approve and in which he does delight as a whole. Now, the question, I think, was when it's your mother dying of cancer or your student who's just got the phone call that her parents are divorced or whatever, and they come to you and say, this is good, this is okay, this is praise God anyhow, This is this is a front burner issue for me. Our church is just full of pain right now. Um, that little baby I described when I began is there. Patty is 38, dying of cancer, may not live till I get home. Irv just had a heart attack. Olga is probably not going to live as her lungs fill up with pneumonia. Elsa just was told she has cancer and probably won't live out in 1998. Uh, Melissa. Roger, Kavor, these are cancer. These are people whose lives, or or uh, Crohn's disease or whatever, Melissa's that I forget. And then people just walking away from their spouses, just walking away. Last year, just what are you doing? Well, I don't love her anymore. So uh, last Sunday, I. Uh, preached on singing from Ephesians 5.17. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus, to God the Father. I had six points. One of the points was, underneath authentic singing must be a deep biblical theology of the sovereign goodness of God. And then I said, where do I get that out of this text? And the answer was, 
I get it from verse 18 where it says, be thankful for all things. First Thessalonians 5 says, in all things. Ephesians 5, 20, I think it's 20, says, for all things. And I simply said to the people, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. So that's, I'm, I'm doing counseling. I'm doing congregational counseling right now. I, you should do for that individual what I do, what I was doing last Sunday. I just said, that's outrageous. Unless we have a theology that somehow enables us to believe these parts of scripture. Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil. Verse 17 of Romans 12, I think it is, weep with those who weep. You know, and, and I get tough with my congregation right here because, you know, we, a lot of people have been attracted to my church because they love the sovereignty of God, because I highlight it a lot. But I hammer away at, we will not clobber each other with this thing. We will not walk into hospital rooms and funeral parlors and into people's faces and with some light glib theology. That's why I said a deep biblical theology of the sovereign goodness of God. We will walk in with tears flowing down our faces with hands on our mouths lest we curse or lest we make light of pain and with our arms stretched out and we will hug and we will weep. And then God did a great thing on Sunday. He ordained without my planning at all that we sang a hymn that had in it this line, You who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God and on Him cast your care. And I said to the people, Did you mean to sing that? You who long pain, and I named them, they were sitting right there, I said, there's Dave and there's Laurie with the three-month-old baby who's never been out of the hospital and may never get out of the hospital. I said, you, you, did you mean to say that to them? You who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God. And I said, if you don't mean it, don't sing it. Now, I think they did mean it. And we need to mean it. But I said, we're going to build a church here in which our theology is deep enough both to say, I hate evil. I hate lostness and I pray against lostness and I pray against evil and I read Genesis 50.20 You meant it for evil but God meant it for good. And Romans 8.28 or Exodus 4.11 Who is it that makes man blind and deaf and seeing and dumb. Is it not I, the Lord? And gives cancer and gives liver tumors to babies. Is it not I, the Lord? That's Exodus 4.11. Both of these things are going to be true at Bethlehem. And this one is going to make us tender and careful and quiet and gentle when we walk into this people's life. I live, the reason I stay a pastor, I could make a living writing books. I get enough royalties and hand them off to the ministry that John leads to live on easily. 
I don't take these. Why would I do that? Pastor, it's a pain in the neck. People dying all over the place. People arguing with each other, getting upset, not liking the worship services. Wrong song this Sunday. Uh, why, why would I do that? I mean, most pastors are looking for a way out. Teaching seminary or write books or sell insurance or something. Now, why do I do this? And there's a simple reason. I love meeting God in people's pain. I'm going to die one of these days, and sometimes it feels real close and real soon. And I want to be so real with God. To be with dying people, to be with suffering people, is to get right up to the brink of eternity and to stand there with them and to look over the edge and to try to tell them what I see and I ask them what they see and to help each other get ready to dive. You can't do that burying yourself away writing books in some Idaho chalet. So we embrace... We. My answer to your question is that you embrace people. You embrace them. You feel with them. You tell them that you understand as much as possible. Or better, you say, I don't understand. I wish I could understand your pain. But then you bring truth to bear. Now, the great thing about being a pastor is that I got 17 years to build a foundation before I go to the hospital. So I don't have to preach at the hospital. I can just hug. They know the theology. I don't have to tell them the theology. That's not the time for the theology. And so I, I hug them and I, I might have to say some tough truth. I'll end with this. I sat on the couch there beside Glenn, who's the husband who's going to lose his wife in, maybe, maybe she's gone right now. I don't know. And he said, I had a dream, John. I had a dream of a wife and four kids and we got our four kids and writing music and, and, and God shattered my dream. And I said to him, and you have to judge the moment. I said, Glenn, I love this guy. And we've been through a lot together. I just put my hand out. We're on the couch. Today. I put my hand, I put my hand on his back. I said, Glenn, don't deify your dreams. That's a tough word. His wife is lying in the hospital bed three feet away with things in her nose. Glenn, don't deify your dreams. And his response was, I can't. I can't. God's the only God, which was worth it.